For the best sleep, there's nothing better than the Sleepy Bookshelf's premium feed. You'll have ad-free access to the entire catalogue, plus exclusive bonus stories in between our longer books. Follow the link in the show notes to learn more and start your seven-day free trial tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me. This evening, we will be continuing with The Enchanted April. But before we open our book, let's take some time to relax and unwind. Starting with your toes, work your way up your body, squeezing and relaxing your muscles as you go, up your legs, to your bottom, your hands, your arms, and your back and shoulders, working all the way up to your head, making sure you don't forget your face. You should feel much more relaxed now, but to clear your mind, let's take some deep breaths. Inhale deeply and collect all your worries and concerns from the day. And now exhale fully, letting them all go. Repeat this as many times as you need while you try and focus on the sound of my voice. Previously, Mr. Wilkins arrived at San Salvatore when Lottie wandered down the hill to meet her husband. The others all tried to stay in their own rooms so as not to have to be introduced right away. They had quite a joyful reunion and once he had been shown to their room, Malash asked Lottie if he may take a bath. The bath and hot water system at San Salvatore was very new and needed supervision from the staff at all times to avoid an internal explosion of sorts. He couldn't read Italian and therefore did not see the word caution on the instructions on the wall as he demanded the staff allow him to bathe alone. Sure enough, a loud bang was heard and Melesh leapt out of the bath, grabbed a towel, and ran down the hall, directly into Lady Caroline, who was taking her opportunity to have her breakfast. They ended up chatting as if nothing was amiss. It turns out, Mr. Wilkins was very aware of Lady Caroline and her family, so when Lottie wrote to him, he immediately jumped at the chance of an introduction in order to make a professional connection to secure future business. The event, however, broke the ice, and the evening was a success by all accounts. The next day, the housekeeper, Constanza, came to each of the women 
with the week's bills to pay. Mrs. Fisher was amazed at the cost and sent Constanza away with strict instructions for the upcoming week. That is where we pick back up tonight. Mrs. Fisher, in search of Lady Caroline, to complain about her extravagant food orders. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 15 Continued She had been under the impression that Lady Caroline ordered the meals and was therefore responsible for the prices. But now it appeared that the cook had been left to do exactly as she pleased ever since they got there, which, of course, was simply disgraceful. Scrap was not in her bedroom, but the room on Mrs. Fisher's opening the door for she suspected her of being in it and only pretending not to hear the knock, was still flower-like from her presence. Scent, sniffed Mrs. Fisher, shutting it again. And she wished Carlyle could have given five minutes straight talk with this young woman. And yet, perhaps even he... She went downstairs to go to the garden in search of her, and in the hall encountered Mr. Wilkins. He had his hat on and was lighting a cigar. Indulgent as Mrs. Fisher felt towards Mr. Wilkins, and peculiarly and even mystically related after the previous morning's encounter, she yet could not like a cigar in the house. Out of doors, she endured it, but it was not necessary, when out of doors was such a big place, to indulge the habit indoors. Even Mr. Fisher, who had been, she should say, a man originally tenacious of habits, had quite soon after marriage got out of this one. However, Mr. Wilkins, snatching off his hat on seeing her, instantly threw the cigar away. He threw it into the water of a great jar of arum lilies, presumably contain, and Mrs. Fisher, aware of the value men attached to their newly lit cigars, could not but be impressed by this immediate and magnificent amende honorable. But the cigar did not reach the water. It got caught in the lilies and smoked on by itself among them, a strange and depraved-looking object. "'Where are you going to, my pretty?' began Mr. Wilkins, advancing towards Mrs. Fisher, but he broke off just in time. Was it morning spirits impelling him to address Mrs. Fisher in the terms of a nursery rhyme?' He wasn't even aware that he knew the thing. Most strange. What could have put it at such a moment into his self-possessed head? He felt great respect for Mrs. Fisher and would not for the world have insulted her by addressing her as a maid, pretty or otherwise. 
He wished to stand well with her. She was a woman of parts, and also, he suspected, of property. At breakfast, they had been most pleasant together, and he had been struck by her apparent intimacy with well-known persons, Victorians, of course, but it was restful to talk about them after the strain of his brother-in-law's Georgian parties on Hampstead Heath. He and she were getting on famously, he felt. She already showed all the symptoms of presently wishing to become a client. Not for the world would he offend her. He turned a little cold at the narrowness of his escape. She had not, however, noticed. You are going out, he said very politely. All readiness should she confirm his assumption to accompany her. I want to find Lady Caroline, said Mrs. Fisher, going towards the glass doors leading to the top garden. An agreeable quest, remarked Mr. Wilkins. May I assist in the search? Allow me, he added, opening the door for her. She usually sits over in that corner behind the bushes, said Mrs. Fisher. And I don't know about it being an agreeable quest. She's been letting the bills run up in the most terrible fashion and needs a good scolding. Lady Caroline, said Mr. Wilkins, unable to follow such an attitude. What has Lady Caroline, if I may inquire, to do with the bills here? The housekeeping was left to her, and as we all share alike, it ought to have been a matter of honour with her. But, Lady Caroline, housekeeping for the party here, a party which includes my wife. My dear lady, you render me speechless. Do you not know she is the daughter of the Dwartwitches? Oh, is that who she is? said Mrs. Fisher, scrunching heavily over the pebbles towards the hidden corner. Well, that accounts for it. The model that man Dwatwich made in his department in the war was a national scandal. It amounted to misappropriation of the public funds. But it is impossible, I assure you, to expect the daughter of the Dwatwiches, began Mr. Wilkins earnestly. The Dwat? Witches, interrupted Mrs. Fisher, and neither here nor there. Duties undertaken should be performed. I don't intend my money to be squandered for the sake of any dwat witches. A headstrong old lady, perhaps not so easy to deal with as he had hoped, but how wealthy. Only the consciousness of great wealth would make her snap her fingers in this manner at the Dwat witches. Lottie, on being questioned, had been vague about her circumstances and had described her house as a mausoleum with goldfish swimming about in it. But now he was sure she was more than very well off. Still, he wished he had not joined her at this moment, for he had no sort of desire to be present at such a spectacle as the scolding of Lady Caroline Dester. Again, however, he was reckoning without Scrap. Whatever she felt when she looked up and beheld Mr. Wilkins discovering her corner on the very first morning, 
nothing but angelicness appeared on her face. She took her feet off the parapet on Mrs. Fisher's sitting down on it and listened gravely to her opening remarks as to her not having any money to fling about in reckless and uncontrolled household expenditure, interrupted her flow by pulling one of the cushions from behind her and offering it to her. Sit on this, said Scrap, holding it out. You'll be more comfortable. Mr. Wilkins leapt to relieve her of it. Oh, thanks, said Mrs. Fisher, interrupted. It was difficult to get into the swing again. Mr. Wilkins inserted the cushion solicitously between the slightly raised Mrs. Fisher and the stone of the parapet, and again she had to say, Thanks. It was interrupted. Besides, Lady Caroline said nothing in her defense. She only looked at her and listened with the face of an attentive angel. It seemed to Mr. Wilkins that it must be difficult to scold a Desta who looked like that and so exquisitely said nothing. Mrs. Fisher, he was glad to see, gradually found it difficult herself, for her severity slackened, and she ended by saying lamely, You ought to have told me you were not doing it. I didn't know you thought I was, said the lovely voice. I would now like to know, said Mrs. Fisher, what you propose to do for the rest of the time here. Nothing, said Scrap, smiling. Nothing? What do you mean to say? If I may be allowed, ladies interposed Mr. Wilkins in his suavest professional manner, to make a suggestion. They both looked at him, and remembering him as they first saw him felt indulgent. I would advise you not to spoil a delightful holiday with worries over housekeeping. Exactly, said Mrs. Fisher. It is what I intend to avoid. Most sensible, said Mr. Wilkins. Why not then, he continued, allow the cook, an excellent cook by the way, so much ahead per diem. Mr. Wilkins knew what was necessary in Latin, and tell her that for the sum she must cater for you and not only cater, but cater as well as ever. One could easily reckon it out. The charges of a moderate hotel, for instance, would do as a basis a halved or perhaps even quartered. And this week that has just passed, asked Mrs. Fisher. The terrible bills of this first week. What about them? They shall be my present to San Salvatore, said Scrap, who didn't like the idea of Lottie's nest egg being reduced so much beyond what she was prepared for. There was a silence. The ground was cut from under Mrs. Fisher's feet. Of course, if you choose to throw your money about, she said at last, disapproving but immensely relieved, while Mr. Wilkins was wrapped in the contemplation of the precious qualities of blue blood. This readiness, for instance, 
not to trouble about money. This free-handedness. It was not only what one admired in others, admired in others perhaps more than anything else, but it was extraordinarily useful to the professional classes. When met with, it should be encouraged by warmth of reception. Mrs. Fisher was not warm. She accepted, from which he deduced that with her wealth went closeness, but she accepted grudgingly. Presents were presents, and one did not look them in this manner in the mouth, he felt. And if Lady Caroline found her pleasure in presenting his wife and Mrs. Fisher with their entire food for a week, it was their part to accept gracefully. One should not discourage gifts. On behalf of his wife, then, Mr. Wilkins expressed what she would wish to express, and remarking to Lady Caroline, with a touch of lightness, for so should gifts be accepted in order to avoid embarrassing the donor, that she had in that case been his wife's hostess since her arrival. He turned almost gaily to Mrs. Fisher and pointed out that she and his wife must now jointly write Lady Caroline the customary letter of thanks for hospitality. A. Collins, said Mr. Wilkins, who knew what was necessary in literature. I prefer the name Collins for such a letter to either that of board or lodging or bread and butter. Let's call it a Collins. Scrap smiled and held out her cigarette case. Mrs. Fisher could not help being mollified. A way out of waste was going to be found thanks to Mr. Wilkins, and she hated waste quite as much as having to pay for it. Also, a way was found out of housekeeping. For a moment, she had thought that if everybody tried to force her into housekeeping on her brief holiday by their own indifference, Lady Caroline, or inability to speak Italian, the other two, she would have to send for Kate Lumley after all. Kate could do it. Kate and she had learned Italian together. Kate would only be allowed to come on condition that she did do it. But this was much better. This way of Mr. Wilkins's. Really a most superior man. There was nothing like an intelligent, not too young man for profitable and pleasurable companionship. And when she got up, the business for which she had come being settled, and said she now intended to take a little stroll before lunch, Mr. Wilkins did not stay with Lady Caroline, as most men she had known would. She was afraid, have wanted to. He asked to be permitted to go and stroll with her, so that he evidently definitely preferred conversation to faces. A sensible, companionable man. A clever, well-read man. A man of the world. A man. She was very glad indeed that she had not written to Kate the other day. What did she want with Kate? She had found a better companion. 
that Mr. Wilkins did not go with Mrs. Fisher because of her conversation, but because when she got up, and he got up because she got up, intending merely to bow her out of the recess, Lady Caroline had put her feet up on the parapet again, and arranging her head sideways in the cushions, had shut her eyes. The daughter of the Dwat witches desired to go to sleep. It was not for him, by remaining, to prevent her. Chapter 16 And so the second week began, and all was harmony. The arrival of Mr. Wilkins instead of, as three of the party had feared, and the fourth had only been protected from fearing, by her burning faith in the effect on him of San Salvatore, disturbing such harmony as there was increased it, he fitted in. He was determined to please, and he did please. He was most amiable to his wife, not only in public, which she was used to, but in private, when he certainly wouldn't have been if he hadn't wanted to. He did want to. He was so much obliged to her, so much pleased with her for making him acquainted with Lady Caroline, that he felt really fond of her. Also proud, for there must be, he reflected, a good deal more in her than he had supposed, for Lady Caroline to have become so intimate with her and so affectionate. And the more he treated her as though she were really very nice, the more Lottie expanded and became really very nice. And the more he, affected in his turn, became really very nice himself so that they went round and round, not in a vicious, but in a highly virtuous circle. Positively for him, Melash petted her. There was at no time much pet in Melash, because he was by nature a cool man. Yet such was the influence on him of, as Lottie supposed, San Salvatore, that in this second week, he sometimes pinched both her ears, one after the other, instead of only one. And Lottie, marvelling at such rapidly developing affectionateness, wondered what he would do should he continue at this rate in the third week, when her supply of ears would have come to an end. He was particularly nice about the washstand, and genuinely desirous of not taking up too much of the space in the small bedroom. Quick to respond, Lottie was even more desirous not to be in his way, and the room became the scene of many an affectionate combat de generosité, each of which left them more pleased with each other than ever. He did not again have a bath in the bathroom, though it was mended and ready for him, but got up and went down every morning to the sea, and in spite of the cool nights making the water cold early, had his dip as a man should, and came up to breakfast, rubbing his hands and feeling, as he told Mrs. Fisher, prepared for anything. 
Lottie's belief in the irresistible influence of the heavenly atmosphere of San Salvatore being thus obviously justified, and Mr. Wilkins, whom Rose knew as alarming and Scrap had pictured as icily unkind, being so evidently a changed man, both Rose and Scrap began to think there might, after all, be something in what Lottie insisted on, that San Salvatore did work purgingly on the character. They were the more inclined to think so, in that they too felt a working going on inside themselves. They felt more cleared, both of them, that second week. Scrap in her thoughts, many of which were now quite nice thoughts, real amiable ones about her parents and relations, with a glimmer in them of recognition of the extraordinary benefits she had received at the hands of, what, fate, providence, anyhow of something, and how at having received them she had misused them by failing to be happy and rose in her bosom, which, though it still yearned, yearned to some purpose, for she was reaching the conclusion that merely inactively to yearn was no use at all, and that she must either by some means stop her yearning, or give it at least a chance, remote but still a chance, of being quieted by writing to Frederick and asking him to come out. If Mr. Wilkins could be changed, thought Rose, why not Frederick? How wonderful it would be. How too wonderful if the place worked on him too and were able to make them even a little understand each other, even a little be friends. Rose so far had loosening and disintegration gone on in her character now was beginning to think her obstinate, straight-lacedness about his books, and her austere absorption in good works had been foolish, and perhaps even wrong. He was her husband, and she had frightened him away. She had frightened love away, precious love, and that couldn't be good. Was not Lottie right when she said the other day that nothing at all except love mattered? Nothing certainly seemed much use unless it was built upon love. But once frightened away, could it ever come back? Yes, it might in that beauty. It might in the atmosphere of happiness Lottie and San Salvatore seemed between them to spread round like some divine infection. She had, however, to get him there first, and he certainly couldn't be got there if she didn't write and tell him where she was. She could write. She must write. For if she did, there was at least a chance of his coming, and if she didn't, there was manifestly none. And then, once here, in this loveliness, with everything so soft and kind and sweet all round, it would be easier to tell him, to try and explain, 
to ask for something different, for at least an attempt at something different in their lives, in the future, instead of the blankness of separation, the cold, oh, the cold of nothing at all but the great windiness of faith, the great bleakness of works. Why one person in the world, one single person belonging to one, of one's very own, to talk to, to take care of, to love, to be interested in, was worth more than all the speeches on platforms and the compliments of chairman in the world. It was also worth more, Rose couldn't help it, the thought would come, than all the prayers. These thoughts were not head thoughts like Scraps, who was altogether free from yearnings, but bosom thoughts. They lodged in the bosom. It was in the bosom that Rose ached and felt so dreadfully lonely. And when her courage failed her, as it did on most days, and it seemed impossible to write to Frederick, she would look at Mr. Wilkins and revive. There he was, a changed man. There he was, going into that small, uncomfortable room every night, that room whose proximities had been Lottie's only misgiving, and coming out of it in the morning, and Lottie coming out of it too, both of them as unclouded and nice to each other as when they went in. And hadn't he, so critical at home, Lottie had told her, of the least thing going wrong, emerged from the bath catastrophe as untouched in spirit as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abenego were untouched in body when they emerged from the fire. Miracles were happening in this place. If they could happen to Mr. Wilkins, why not to Frederick? She got up quickly. Yes, she would write. She would go and write to him at once. But suppose... She paused. Suppose he didn't answer. Suppose he didn't even answer. And she sat down again to think a little longer. In these hesitations did Rose spend most of the second week. Then there was Mrs. Fisher. Her restlessness increased that second week. It increased to such an extent that she might just as well not have had her private sitting room after all, for she could no longer sit. Not for ten minutes together could Mrs. Fisher sit. And added to the restlessness as the days of the second week proceeded on their way, she had a curious sensation which worried her of rising sap. She knew the feeling because she had sometimes had it in childhood in specially swift springs when the lilacs and the syringes seemed to rush out into blossom in a single night. But it was strange to have it again after over fifty years. She would have liked to remark on the sensation to someone she was ashamed. It was such an absurd sensation at her age, 
Yet oftener and oftener, and every day more and more, did Mrs. Fisher have a ridiculous feeling, as if she were presently going to burgeon. Sternly, she tried to frown the unseemly sensation down. Virgin indeed. She had heard of dried staffs, pieces of mere deadwood, suddenly putting forth fresh leaves, but only in legend. She was not in legend. She knew perfectly what was due to herself. Dignity demanded that she should have nothing to do with fresh leaves at her age. And yet there it was, the feeling that presently, that at any moment now, she might crop out all green. Mrs. Fisher was upset. There were many things she disliked more than anything else, and one was when the elderly imagined they felt young and behaved accordingly. Of course, they could only imagine it. They were only deceiving themselves. But how deplorable were the results? She herself had grown old as people should grow old, steadily and firmly. No interruptions, no belated afterglows and spasmodic returns. If, after all these years, she were now going to be deluded into some sort of unsuitable breaking out, how humiliating. Indeed, she was thankful that second week that Kate Lumley was not there. It would be most unpleasant should anything different occur in her behavior to have Kate looking on. Kate had known her all her life. She felt as if she could let herself go. Here, Mrs. Fisher frowned at the book she was vainly trying to concentrate on. For where did that expression come from? Much less painfully before strangers than before an old friend. Old friends reflected Mrs. Fisher, who hoped she was reading, compare one constantly with what one used to be. They are always doing it if one develops. They are surprised at development. They hark back. They expect motionless after, say, fifty, to the end of one's days. That thought, Mrs. Fisher, her eyes going steadily line by line, down the page and not a word of it getting through into her consciousness, is foolish of friends. It is condemning one to a premature death. One should continue, of course with dignity, to develop, however old one may be. She had nothing against developing, against further ripeness, because as long as one was alive, one was not dead, obviously decided Mrs. Fisher, and development, change, ripening, were life. What she would dislike would be unripening, going back to something green. She would dislike it intensely, and this is what she felt she was on the brink of doing. Naturally, it made her very uneasy, and only in constant movement could she find distraction. Increasingly restless and no longer able to confine herself to her battlements, she wandered more and more frequently 
and also aimlessly in and out of the top garden, to the growing surprise of Scrap, especially when she found that all Mrs. Fisher did was to stare a few minutes at the view, pick a few dead leaves off the rose bushes, and go away again. In Mr. Wilkins's conversation, she found temporary relief, but though he joined her whenever he could, he was not always there, for he spread his attentions judiciously among the three ladies. And when he was somewhere else, she had to face and manage her thoughts as best she could by herself. Perhaps it was the excess of light and color at San Salvatore which made every other place seem dark and black, and Prince of Wales Terrace did seem a very dark, black spot to have to go back to. A dark, narrow street, and her house, dark and narrow as the street, with nothing really living or young in it. The goldfish could hardly be called living, or at most not more than half living, and were certainly not young, and except for them there were only the maids, and they were dusty old things. Dusty old things, Mrs. Fisher paused in her thoughts, arrested by the strange expression. Where had it come from? How was it possible for it to come at all? It might have been one of Mrs. Wilkins's in its levity, its almost slang. Perhaps it was one of hers, and she had heard her say it and unconsciously caught it from her. If so, this was both serious and disgusting. That the foolish creature should penetrate into Mrs. Fisher's very mind and establish her personality there, a personality which was still, in spite of the harmony, apparently existing between her and her intelligent husband, so alien to Mrs. Fisher's own, so far removed from what she understood and liked, and infect her with her undesirable phrases was most disturbing. Never in her life before had such a sentence come into Mrs. Fisher's head. Never in her life before had she thought of her maids or of anybody else as dusty old things. Her maids were not dusty old things. They were most respectable, neat women who were allowed the use of the bathroom every Saturday night. Elderly, certainly. But then so was she. So was her house. So was her furniture. So were her goldfish. They were all elderly, and as they should be, together. But there was a great difference between being elderly and being a dusty old thing. How true it was what Ruskin said, that evil communications corrupt good manners. But did Ruskin say it? On second thoughts, she was not sure. But it was just the sort of thing he would have said if he had said it. And in any case, it was true. Merely hearing Mrs. Wilkins' evil communications at meals, she did not listen She avoided listening, yet it was evident she had heard. 
those communications which, in that they so often were at once, vulgar, indelicate and profane, and always, she was sorry to say, laughed at by Lady Caroline, must be classed as evil, as spoiling her own mental manners. Soon she might not only think, but say. How terrible that would be, if that were the form her breaking out was going to take, the form of unseemly speech, Mrs. Fisher was afraid she would hardly with any degree of composure be able to bear it. At this stage, Mrs. Fisher wished, more than ever, that she were able to talk over her strange feelings with someone who would understand. There was, however, no one who would understand, except Mrs. Wilkins herself. She would. She would know at once. Mrs. Fisher was sure what she felt like. But this was impossible. It would be as abject as begging the very microbe that was infecting one for protection against its disease. She continued accordingly to bear her sensations in silence and was driven by them into that frequent, aimless appearing in the top garden which presently roused even Scrap's attention. Scrap had noticed it and vaguely wondered at it for some time before Mr. Wilkins inquired of her one morning as he arranged her cushions for her. He had established the daily assisting of Lady Caroline into her chair as his special privilege, whether there was anything the matter with Mrs. Fisher. At that moment, Mrs. Fisher was standing by the eastern parapet, shading her eyes and carefully scrutinizing the distant white houses of Mazago. They could see her through the branches of the Daphnes. I don't know, said Scrap. She's a lady, I take it, said Mr. Wilkins, who would be unlikely to have anything on her mind. I should imagine so, said Scrap, smiling. She has, and her restlessness appears to suggest it. I should be more than glad to assist her with advice. I'm sure you would be most kind. Of course she has her own legal advisor, but he is not on the spot. I am. And a lawyer on the spot, said Mr. Wilkins, who endeavoured to make his conversation when he talked to Lady Caroline light, aware that one must be light with young ladies is worth two in, well, we won't be ordinary and compete for the proverb, but let's say London. You should ask her. Ask her if she needs assistance. Would you advise it? Would it not be a little, a little delicate to touch on such a question? A question whether or no a lady has something on her mind? Perhaps she would tell you if you go and talk to her. I think it must be lonely to be Mrs. Fisher. You are all thoughtfulness and consideration, declared Mr. Wilkins, wishing for the first time in his life that he were a foreigner so that he might respectfully kiss her hand on withdrawing to go obediently and relieve Mrs. Fisher's loneliness. It was wonderful what variety of exits from her corner Scrap contrived for Mr. Wilkins. 
Each morning, she found a different one, which sent him off, pleased after he arranged her cushions for her. She allowed him to arrange the cushions because she had instantly discovered the very first five minutes of the very first evening that her fears lest he should cling to her and stare in dreadful admiration were baseless. Mr. Wilkins did not admire like that. It was not only she instinctively felt not in him, but if it had been, he would not have dared to in her case. He was all respectfulness. She could direct his movements in regard to herself with the raising of an eyelash. His one concern was to obey. She'd been prepared to like him if he would only be so obliging as to not admire her, and she did like him. He did not forget his moving defenselessness the first morning in his town, and he amused her, and he was kind to Lottie. It is true she liked him most when he wasn't there, but then she usually liked everybody most when they weren't there. Certainly, he did seem to be one of those men, rare in her experience, who never looked at a woman from the predatory angle. The comfort of this, the simplification it brought into the relations of the party was immense. From this point of view, Mr. Wilkins was simply ideal. He was unique and precious. Whatever she thought of him, and was perhaps inclined to dwell on the aspects of him that were a little boring, she remembered this and murmured, But what a treasure. Indeed, it was Mr. Wilkins's one aim during his stay at San Salvatore to be a treasure. At all costs, the three ladies who were not his wife must like him and trust him. Then, presently, when trouble arose in their lives, and in what lives did not trouble sooner or later arise, they would recollect how reliable he was and how sympathetic, and turn to him for advice. Ladies with something on their minds were exactly what he wanted. Lady Caroline, he judged, had nothing on hers at the moment, but so much beauty, for he could not see but that was evident, must have had its difficulties in the past, and would have more of them before it had done. In the past, he had not been at hand. In the future, he hoped to be. And meanwhile, the behaviour of Mrs. Fisher the next in importance of the ladies from the professional point of view, showed definite promise. It was almost certain that Mrs. Fisher had something on her mind. He'd been observing her attentively, and it was almost certain. With the third, with Mrs. Arbuthnot, he had up to this made least headway. She was so very retiring and quiet might not this very retiringness, this tendency to avoid the others and spend her time alone, indicate that she too was troubled? If so, he was her man. He would cultivate her. He would follow her and sit with her and encourage her to tell him about herself. Arbuthnot, he understood from Lottie, was a British museum official 
nothing specially important at present, but Mr. Wilkins regarded it as his business to know all sorts and kinds. Besides, there was promotion. Arbuthnot promoted might become very much worthwhile. As for Lottie, she was charming. She really had all the qualities he had credited her with during his courtship, and they had been, it appeared, merely in abeyance since. His early impressions of her were now being endorsed by the affection and even admiration Lady Caroline showed for her. Lady Caroline Dester was the last person he was sure to be mistaken on such a subject. Her knowledge of the world, her constant association with only the best, must make her quite unerring. Lottie was, evidently then, that which before marriage he had believed her to be. She was valuable. She certainly had been most valuable in introducing him to Lady Caroline and Mrs. Fisher. A man in his profession could be immensely helped by a clever and attractive wife. Why had she not been attractive sooner? Why this sudden flowering? Mr. Wilkins began too to believe there was something peculiar, as Lottie had almost at once informed him, in the atmosphere of San Salvatore. It promoted expansion. It brought out dormant qualities. I'm feeling more and more pleased, and even charmed by his wife. I'm very content with the progress he was making with the two others, and the hopeful progress to be made with the retiring third. Mr. Wilkins could not remember ever having such an agreeable holiday. The only thing that might perhaps be bettered was the way they would call him Mr. Wilkins. Nobody said Mr. Mellash Wilkins. Yet he had introduced himself to Lady Caroline. He flinched a little at the circumstances, as Mellash Wilkins. Since this was a small matter, not enough to worry about, he would be foolish in such a place and such society he worried about anything. He was not even worrying about what the holiday was costing, and had made up his mind to pay not only his own expenses, but his wife's as well and surprise her at the end by presenting her with her nest egg as intact as when she'd started and just the knowledge that he was preparing a happy surprise for her made him feel warmer than ever towards her. In fact, Mr. Wilkins, who had begun by being consciously and according to plan on his best behaviour, remained on it unconsciously and with no effort at all. And meanwhile, the beautiful golden days were dropping gently from the second week, one by one, equal in beauty with those of the first, and the scent of bean fields and flower on the hillside behind the village came across to San Salvatore whenever the air moved. In the garden that second week, the poet's eyed Narcissus disappeared out the long grass at the edge of the zigzag path, and wild gladiolus, slender and rose-coloured, came on their stead. White pinks, 
bloomed in the borders, filling the whole place with their smoky, sweet smell. And a bush nobody had noticed burst into glory and fragrance, and it was a purple lilac bush. Such a jumble of spring and summer was not to be believed in, except by those who dwelt in the gardens. Everything seemed to be out together. All the things crowded into one month, which in England spread penurously over six. Even primroses were found one day by Mrs. Wilkins in a cold corner up in the hills. And when she brought them down to the geraniums and the heliotrope of San Salvatore, they looked quite shy.